0: Father, we've been singing about your word, and now we're going to come and consider your word. And we pray that those things that we were singing will be true. We pray that as we come to your word, you would teach us, you would encourage us, you would rebuke us. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I have an awful feeling that uh, by the end of today I am going to be thoroughly confused. I was at Bristol this morning, and I was preaching from Zechariah chapter 6, a strange vision of uh, four chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze. And now this evening I'm having to scroll back to chapter 4, Uh, into a a completely different but equally baffling vision. So, um, as I say, by the end of today, I'm probably going to be totally confused and I'll spend all day tomorrow recovering from it all. But um, let's uh, look at this chapter that we've had read for us. If you turn to Zechariah chapter 4. And I don't know, do you ever nod off in your armchair? (laughs) I've always prided myself uh, that I never sleep in the daytime. Uh, but I, I have to admit that nowadays uh, I do sometimes nod off in the evening. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll be watching a, a television programme and all of a sudden it doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And then I realise it's because I've, I've slept through a, a large chunk of it. You had that experience? Uh, it might even be that you sometimes find yourself sort of drifting away during a sermon. Um, hopefully, you, you won't do that this evening. Uh, but but if you do, um, well, it, it's um, it, it, it's not so necessarily uh, that you're in bad company, uh, because if you look at Zechariah four verse one, we, we see um. That we read, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. So either Zechariah had fallen asleep or at least he was uh, getting a bit drowsy and his concentration was slipping. Now, true, it it was the middle of the night, um, but he'd been seeing these amazing things in all of those visions. Uh, and yet he he was nodding off, um, as, as we saw last week. You know, he had just seen the vision uh, of Joshua, the high priest, who represented uh, the coming great high priest, uh, the the branch, the Messiah, who would remove sin in a single day. Uh, perhaps Zechariah thought well, there couldn't be any more to come. That, that's as good as it gets, and, and he'd better sleep on these things. Uh, but we see that the angel roused him. There were still more visions for him to see. And so in, in verse 2 there, we see the angel asked him, what do you see? Vision number five uh, had come. And it's probably the, the strangest of the visions that we've seen so far so firstly what did Zechariah see what was he actually seeing in this vision well, we see that in verses 2 and 3 Zechariah begins to tell us what he saw I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So first and foremost, there was a lampstand, all of gold. Uh, and that lampstand ha- had a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. The, the, the ESV um, says uh, there were seven lips on each of the lamps what were these lips? Well, the NIV refers to them as channels. Uh, the New King James Version as pipes. Uh, the Hebrew word actually means something like, like spouts or, or tubes. So it had these, these spouts or tubes. Uh, then the ESV says there were seven lips on each of the lamps. that suggests that there were seven pipes per lamp so 49 uh, pipes or tubes in total Uh, however other versions suggest one pipe per lamp Uh, and in fact that the Hebrew could be taken either way it could be one pipe per lamp or, or seven pipes per lamp but we don't need to be too concerned about how complicated the plumbing was uh, the important thing is that these pipes or tubes were connected to the lamps that were on the lampstand. But then besides this lampstand with its bowl uh, and its lamps and its pipes, we're told there were two olive trees, one on each side. you puzzled? Well, Zechariah clearly was. As with the previous visions, we see there in verse 4, he asked the angel who was with him, What are these, my Lord? It's something of a constant refrain throughout. Zechariah sees these weird visions and is totally baffled. And he turns to to the angel and says, What are these? The angel replied, but he didn't really answer the question. Then in verses 8 to 9, we find that the word of the Lord came directly to Zechariah. But it still didn't really answer the question. Uh, I, so we read in verse 11. Then I asked the angel of the Lord, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? So now the question's a bit more specific. He's specifically asking about these, these olive trees. Uh, but even so, there's still no answer. So he persisted into verse 12. And there he said, "And a second time I answered and said to him, "What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out?" So this time, he's even more specific that the question gives us more information about what he saw. Um, in the two olive trees, it seems there were two particular branches. Uh, Presumably one of these branches was in one olive tree and the the other in the other one. Also we find that there are two gold pipes that hadn't been mentioned before and they were next to uh, the two branches. Now, the exact arrangement here isn't completely spelt out, but given that the olive trees were on each side of the bowl, it seems likely that the two pipes from the two branches fed the bowl, and that the seven pipes then went from the bowl to the seven lamps. So, you've got this uh, strange picture and it's very complicated arrangements. Uh, now, besides seeing the strange contraption uh, and the two olive trees, uh, Zechariah also then began to see some sort of action. Uh, you know, up until then, the vision had seemed quite static. It was just this strange object uh, and, and the olive trees. But now something started happening, and it gives us uh, some information about what the pipes were for. What was happening? Well, we're told that from the, the, the two golden pipes... The golden oil is poured out. Now the word oil doesn't actually appear uh, in the text at all. Um, a more literal translation would be something like from which the golden is poured out or from which the golden drains. Uh, but golden or golden liquid uh, it is probably best understood to be oil. So it, it seems that oil flowed through the two golden pipes and was being discharged in some way. And that immediately begs the question, where does the oil come from? And where does the oil go to? Is the oil flowing from the olive trees to the golden bowl, or from the bowl to the olive trees? That uh, The text doesn't actually say. Uh, All that verse 12 tells us is that there were two branches alongside two gold pipes that pour out a golden liquid, which is most likely oil. And that's the baffling sight that Zechariah saw in this vision. That's the easy bit, working out exactly what he was seeing. But next we need to ask ourselves, what did it represent? Well, when the angel asked... What do you see? The first thing Zechariah said was, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold. So the golden lampstand was very much the the, the focal point of the vision. That's what immediately caught Zechariah's eye. The gold lampstand had seven lamps. And what does that make you think of? What comes to your mind? Well, you know, because Doug (laughs) has already shown you... (laughs) But you'll recognise that as, as the lampstand uh, that, that was, was in the, the tabernacle. That's, that's what the lampstand in the tabernacle was like. You remember when Chris was going through Leviticus and he showed us that diagram of the layout of the tabernacle. And there in the holy place, there was that funny little squiggle that represented the lampstand with its seven lamps. It's known as the menorah. And what did that represent? Well, the traditional interpretation of this vision uh, suggests that the the lampstand represented the people of God. And of course, in Old Testament times, that was the nation of Israel. Uh, And in fact, the, the modern state of Israel... Uh, has adopted the menorah uh, as one of its national symbols. Um, you see it on uh, on Israeli postage stamps, for instance. Or in fact, during the week on the news, I, I saw coverage of the, the Holocaust m- memorial. And there was a lectern, and on the front of it, there was a picture of the menorah. So it is very much associated with, with the Jewish state, So that's the traditional view. But what does the Bible actually tell us about the menorah? And when you look into it, you find it's not a great deal. Um, Exodus 25, 31 to 40 gives detailed instructions for making it. Uh, Then in Exodus 26, 35, there are very precise instructions about where it's to be positioned in the tabernacle. Exodus 27, 2021. 20, uh, very detailed instructions about providing top quality olive oil to keep it burning. Uh, Exodus 37, 17-23, a confirmation that it was made exactly as instructed. Exodus 40 Confirmation that it was positioned exactly as instructed. That clearly, the lampstand was was very significant, uh, as as was everything to do with the tabernacle. But but nothing in all of that detailed information really tells us what it represented. So, what okay. makes the commentators uh, say that it represented that the people of God? Uh, from a reference in Exodus, uh, from those references in Exodus, all, all we can really say is that the menorah was an important part of the temple furnisher. Uh, as far as I'm aware, that there is nowhere else in the Bible that specifically says what the lampstand represented. However, you, you get a clue in, in Numbers chapter 8, where we read... Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And you see, the Lord's design required that the lights from the seven lamps should shine out in front of the lampstand. And if you think back once more to Chris's diagram of the tabernacle, don't know if you can remember what was directly in front of the lampstand. I won't let you say, because if you get it right, that I'd be showing off. But it was the table of showbread. Uh, and upon that, there were 12 loaves. And what did the 12 loaves represent? The 12 tribes. They represented the people Of God, so it seems that the picture was uh, of uh, of of the Lord shining upon His people. This lampstand represents the Lord, uh, and its light uh, represents um, His presence and His kindly disposition towards His people. Now if you carefully read the text of Zechariah's vision, then I think we'll discover that the lampstand in the vision had very much the same meaning as that. Um, you get the impression that Zechariah seemed to think he knew what the lampstand meant because he doesn't ask any questions about the, about the lampstand. Uh, the, the question he asked there in 11 and 12 was were to do with the two olive trees and the two branches rather than the lampstand. In verse 14, we find that the angel answered by saying, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And that tells us what the two branches represented. It also enables us to go on to see what the lampstand represented. Now, of course, anointing, well, that's pouring out of oil, isn't it? So the anointed ones will have had oil poured upon them. So that immediately suggests that the oil in the vision it is flowing uh, to the anointed ones rather than from them. What are we under- to understand by the two anointed ones? Well, anointing signified being set apart for a particular purpose, or a particular office. Uh, and in, in Israel, the two offices for which people were anointed were those of priest and king. And most of the commentators uh, agree that, that one olive tree represented the kingly office, the, the, the other uh, the, the, uh, represented the priestly office, and the, the branches in each of the uh, olive trees were the occupants, if you like, uh, of the kingly and priestly offices at the time. So, who were they? Well, we saw in, in, in last week's vision, didn't we, that Joshua was the high priest. Um, strictly speaking, uh, at this time, Israel didn't have a king uh, but Zerubbabel was the, the civil leader, and he was a descendant of David. Uh, and so he stood in the kingly line. And just as um, last time we saw that Joshua, the high priest, was given a message from, from the Lord, so here in verse 6 you, you notice that Zerubbabel was also given a message from the Lord in this vision. So in the immediate context, the two branches were Joshua and Zerubbabel, Joshua was a branch in the olive tree of the priestly office and Zerubbabel a branch in the olive tree of the kingly office. So it looks as though the oil was flowing from the golden lampstand to the priest and the king. But we still haven't worked out uh, what the lampstand represented but I think Zechariah 4 gives us enough information for us to be able to work that out firstly uh, at the end of verse 9 we read these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth I don't think it's unreasonable uh, to liken uh, those eyes to the lamps that the seven lamps in, in the lampstand And you notice that uh, they're not merely eyes. They're specifically said to be the eyes of the Lord. Um, If if that's so, that suggests that the lampstand represents the Lord himself. That the lampstand was made of gold. is compatible with it being the Lord. That the number seven was associated with it is also compatible with it being the Lord, because the number seven is generally used as the number that represents perfection. And I think that interpretation that the golden lampstand represents the Lord is confirmed. If you look at verse 14, where we read, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The New King James Version is even clearer in saying, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of all the earth. Now, what represented the two anointed ones? It was the two branches. Where are the two branches? In the two olive trees. What did the two olive trees stand beside? They stood beside the gold lampstand. So, what did the gold lampstand represent? They must have represented the Lord of all the earth. So we can take the lampstand to represent the the, the light of of God's presence. Which I think is pretty much what uh, Chris suggested when when we came across the lampstand back in in Leviticus. So this vision is depicting the fact that for the king and the priest to fulfil their roles, they depend... On the empowering oil flowing to them from the Lord of all the earth, that they need to be anointed ones, not not merely in the sense that they'd, they'd had oil poured upon them by men to set them apart for their office, but in the sense that oil from the Lord is continually being poured upon them. What did all that represent? Well, as we continue, we'll see that the oil represented the Holy Spirit. So so this vision is depicting the fact that for the king and the priest to fulfil their roles, they depend upon the empowering oil flowing to them from the Lord of all the earth. They need to be anointed in that way. Well, having worked out what this strange vision represented we must ask ourselves if that understanding fits w- with the message that it was uh, intended to convey we must ask ourselves what was the message what did it mean what what was the message this vision was meant to illustrate uh, and does our interpretation of the vision fit with that message well the the message is pretty much summed up in verse 6 where the angel uh, said Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, before we think about uh, that message, notice that the Lord said, By my spirit. So it seems likely that the oil in the vision that flowed from the lampstand to the olive trees did represent the Holy Spirit being supplied by the Lord. Uh, and oil is often used in the Bible as a, a, a depiction of the Holy Spirit. In, in the first instance, the message this vision uh, depicted was the message from the Lord to Zerubbabel, who, who, as we've noted, was one of the two anointed ones. And he was primarily responsible for re- the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, the, 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 the gist of the message was summed up by means of the word of the Lord as being not by might, nor by power, nor by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's, if you like, an, an essential, general principle for anyone seeking to do the Lord's work in any way. In this instance, what in particular was to be not by might nor by power, power, but by my spirit? We'll begin to find out in verse 7 as the word of the Lord continues by saying, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it. Don't think we're intended to try to identify a, a literal mountain uh, here that Zerubbabel was going to flatten into a plain. It, it wasn't a, a call to bring in the bulldozers or any anything like that. Um, we're told it's something that would, would be accomplished when Zerubbabel would bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it, um, shouts of grace are uh, appropriate uh, they're, they're fitting because bringing forward the top stone was not by the the might uh, or power of Zerubbabel or any other men but by God's spirit it's suggesting the completion uh, of the building of the temple that's confirmed as uh, the word of the Lord then came directly to, to Zechariah and said there in verse uh, verse nine, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house; his hands shall also complete it. In fact, it was completed just about four years after uh, after the, the, after this vision was 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 seen. So, what was being prophesied actually literally physically came to pass uh, in the space of just four years so the message was a, a word of encouragement uh, to, to, to Zerubbabel and the others as well you know, despite the difficulties despite the hardness of the task despite the opposition of enemies despite lethargy coming over them even the cynicism of the people, the Lord was promising that all of those obstacles would be overcome and the temple would be completed. Why? Well, not because of Zerubbabel's might, not not because he was so strong, not because he was a great leader, but because the Holy Spirit was being supplied uh, supplied through him and, and was at work. And what's more... The temple wouldn't merely be completed, it would be wonderfully completed. Look at verse 10, where the Lord goes on to say, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You see, even those who had despised the day of small things, uh, there would be rejoicing at the completion of, of the temple nowadays those words about despising the day of small things I think are quite commonly misapplied and and quoted out of context there's no doubt that we do live in days certainly in in our lands when we live in, in, in serious spiritual decline churches are dying less and less people are responding To responding to the gospel Um, we we, we can't deny that we we see that all around us and so we say ah we're in the day of small things and we hear those words being used to to encourage us almost to be thankful for small mercies Uh, be be content with the current situation you know pat ourselves on the backs and say well at least, at least we've got something. At least it isn't all gone. And that's the way in which it can often tend to be used. But you see, that wasn't the idea when the words were spoken to Zechariah. Uh, we, we see their context if we look at Haggai chapter 2, uh, in verse 3, we read, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's clear that those who who despised the day of small things, well, they were those who remembered the old test, uh, the, the old te- temple. You know, they, they they said that this new temple wouldn't look as good as the old one in in terms of size, in terms of appearance and splendor. It was going to be inferior to Solomon's great temple, compared to the glory of the old temple. This would be as nothing. It was hardly worth the effort of building it. Uh, Despite that, we read uh, in verse 4 of Haggai 2. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And you notice that our two branches are both mentioned there. Zerubbabel and Joshua are both mentioned. And the message of the Lord uh, to them was, work on it. Not because they were strong enough. Not because they had great ability. The reason was, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. How was he with them? Well, he went on to say in verse 5, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. In other words, not by might, not by my, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And because of that, the temple would be completed and it would be cause for great rejoicing. So so that was the immediate message. But then, what's the message for us? I think there's a a general message for us, and there's a a big-picture message for us. Um, the, the, The general message is that principle, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Now, unlike Zerubbabel, we're not building a physical temple, but we are to be doing the Lord's work. And we must always remember that it is His work and it's His Spirit that enables it to be done. Think of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. We must always look to the Lord rather than depend upon our own resources. But we mustn't misunderstand that either. We mustn't think that because we are completely dependent on the Lord, we can therefore sit back, do nothing and wait for it to all happen. In some circles, there was that uh, common slogan, wasn't there? Let go and let God. And the thinking was that to be really spiritual, to be really godly, then you needed to be passive. Uh, You need to give up trying just hand everything over to the lord well was that what the lord meant when he said not by might nor by power but by my spirit to zerubbabel down to all, sit back and marvel at, as the temple miraculously arises before you no of course not There have be no doubt that the hands of zerubbabel had laid the foundation of the temple. Likewise, the hands of Zerubbabel would complete it. He, he was going to be there with the plumb line in, in his hands. This involved hard physical work. It required human effort from beginning to end. You know, the, the question isn't whether we work or God works, the question is whether. We trust in our own efforts or know that our best efforts are hopelessly inadequate. But we do it anyway because we trust in the Lord to take those efforts and make them sufficient. It's not let go and let God. It's do your very best, do your utmost and look to the Lord to bless. And when we have that mindset... I think there are a couple of important consequences. Uh, The first consequence is that it allows no room for pride, does it? Because when things are accomplished, oh yeah, although you've you've played your part, you've done your bit, uh, but you'll be in no doubt that the work was the Lord. It was the Lord who accomplished it. Second consequence is to not be discouraged by outward appearances or apparent failures. I mean, Zerubbabel, I mean, he must have been incredibly discouraged when he saw all the opposition and that the way that the, the people themselves were, were losing heart and uh, becoming cynical. Why, why not be uh, discouraged by outward appearances? Well, because the Lord is in control. He will work out his purposes in due course. That the people in Zechariah's day allowed themselves to be discouraged. Uh, We're told they, they despise the day of small things. But the Lord said those who despise the day of small things shall rejoice. So always look beyond the here and now. Look beyond the outward circumstances. Because God's purposes are being worked out and they will be fulfilled and that brings us to the if you like the big picture message in in the previous visions uh, there's always been that sense that they were pointing beyond immediate earthly things to something much greater much more glorious and we have that sense again here in this vision when the Lord said, "Those who despise the day of small, th- uh, that those who despise the day of small things shall rejoice," was He simply saying they'd rejoice because the temple had been built? Yeah, after all, that they considered it to be a feeble imitation uh, of the former temple. Yeah, no doubt they'd be relieved that the work was finished, but would they really rejoice in something they considered so second rate? So you sense this points towards something more that has really caused them, uh, a real cause for rejoicing. If you remember uh, back in Zechariah 2, verses 10 to 11, we read there, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, And they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What would be the cause for such singing and rejoicing? Well, one thing was that many nations would come to the Lord. Haggai refers to that in chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That didn't happen in Zechariah's day. But when it did, the temple would be filled with glory. No wonder there would be rejoicing. The other reason for rejoicing was that the Lord would then dwell in the midst of his people. That's very much temple type language, isn't it? And you notice that it says, And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Um, You have exactly the same language in our passage, in in verse 9. The word of the Lord said, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So the, the Lord who would dwell among them would have been sent by the Lord of hosts. God will have sent God. Um, we saw in chapter 2 that this sent one, who is God, was referred to as my servant, the branch. That's the promised Messiah. Everything was pointing to and leading to and preparing for the coming of the Messiah. where many nations would be added to the Lord and become his people and as we saw last time sin would be removed in a single day now Messiah means anointed one uh, and he's often referred to as the branch Uh, and in in this vision there are two anointed ones but the Messiah is the anointed one In this vision, uh, the two anointed ones are depicted as two branches. But the Messiah is the branch. So a connection here. We'll look at Zechariah 6 verse 12. Um, We read there, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch... For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That, that's speaking of the branch, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Zerubbabel and, and co-workers were building an earthly temple, but the true temple of the Lord would be built by the branch. Continuing in verse 13, we're told more about the branch. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honour and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. He will sit and rule on his throne. So he's the king. But he will also be A priest on his throne. So he's both priest and king. Uh, And you see that the two anointed ones in our vision, one, if you like, to build the temple, one to serve in it, well, they foreshadowed the one anointed one who would both build and occupy the true spiritual temple of the Lord. So returning to, to, to the vision, the two olive trees ultimately represent the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands before the Lord of all the earth and receives from him the golden oil of the Holy Spirit. You remember when uh, Jesus was baptised by, by John, the Holy Spirit fell upon him as a dove. And in fact, that's recorded in all four Gospels, which suggests it's, it's very important, it's very Uh, Very significant. Remember when Jesus was preaching uh, from Isaiah in the synagogue and he quoted, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, And he went on to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, the Messiah, received the Holy Spirit Uh, Just as Zerubbabel was to build an earthly temple, his task is to build a spiritual temple of the Lord. Uh, And he does so, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. He didn't come with with, with earthly power. He didn't come with with earthly might. He came with lowliness and humility. Uh, And he doesn't build his temple by earthly means, but by the working of the Spirit in the hearts and minds of men and women. And just as surely as Zerubbabel completed the earthly temple, so King Jesus will complete the spiritual temple. Well, may that that knowledge spur us on to, to serve him and to work for him. Uh, let, let's not be discouraged by outward smallness, but be encouraged uh, by the glory of his purpose and the power of his spirit. Amen.